If you were here last time that I preached, I went through the first part of the third chapter of James. And um, I'll just let you know, um, we've started a new, kind of a new thing, a blog. And actually Blake's putting together kind of a summary of the sermons. And so I, and he's doing a great job. If you want to check that out, go to our website and and look those up. But it'll be a, I think, a good tool as kind of a short refresher before the next sermon. If you can look that up ahead of time, it w- I think it will be helpful. But um, as a quick overview, the first part of the chap- third chapter of James was all about taming the tongue, controlling our language, controlling our words and how we use our words and, and how we can use them for good, we can use them for edification and to build up we can use them to tear down, and it was like he used a, the example of like a wildfire and how fast that problem can spread. So now as we go on now into the third chapter, he's going to talk about those who are wise and where wisdom comes from and what it looks like. And then he's going to, t- in contrast to that, he's going to talk about false wisdom, where it comes from, and what it looks like. And so you can keep that in your mind about as we look at godly wisdom, as we look at wisdom from above, keep the the control of the tongue in your mind because that is a big part of what godly wisdom looks like. Um, and that's so to keep that in context, keep that in mind. But we'll start in verse 13, chapter 3, James chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So a truly wise man is a very understanding man full of knowledge. So when we look at this, when we look at wisdom, we have to get an understanding of the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Right? Is there a difference between knowledge and wisdom? I, I believe that as we look through the scriptures, we will find out that there is. So you can have a lot of knowledge and not have a lot of wisdom. Has anybody ever been that way, known somebody that way? Probably so. Um, you, can, you can gain a lot of knowledge, and this is a problem that we, I mean, it seems like as young men, we deal with this a lot of times. We gain a lot of knowledge, and we don't know how to apply that knowledge properly. So I think when we look at the difference between knowledge and wisdom, wisdom is having the ability to take the things that you know and put them into application, right? It's kind of like in the, in the secular world, it's kind of like you can have book smarts and you can have application intelligence, um, somebody can go to school, you get out of college. I remember when I went to college, I think they, I don't remember them telling me this specifically, but since talking to other kids in college, I realized that at some point they teach you, you have to know more than everybody else and you have to act like it. Because about that second year of college, you notice all of a sudden this kid knows more than everybody. I remember being that way. And I would argue with my dad about things and because he didn't have a college degree. Right, So now I'm smarter than him because I'm in college. And I had this knowledge that I was learning, but I didn't have any idea on how it actually practically applied. We see that in agriculture a lot. You can read a certain thing about how to get something to grow, but there's no way until you've actually grown something that you know how to do it, right? That's kind of knowledge and wisdom. And we see that with scriptures. You can gain a lot of knowledge and you can quote scriptures. There's people that can memorize large portions of the Bible, but yet they don't know how to take that knowledge and actually walk it out, right? And I think that's, as Christians, that's what we're attaining to. We're taking what God has given us in his word and learning how to live it out. And so James here says... Who is wise and understanding among you? Um, So, who among you has the knowledge and can apply it? So, who among you has this, 
can, we can identify that has this wisdom. And so what does it look like? He tells us, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So there's three things, I think, that you can identify somebody that has this godly wisdom. The first one is through their conversation. Going back to the first part of the book, or first part of this chapter, controlling the tongue. Good conversation. Wise men and women will have clean and edifying conversations. Okay, a wise man or a wise woman is not caught up in all of these, and I, I talked about it the last time, all of these vain arguments. They're not caught up in worldly terminology trying to sound cool and hip and all of those things. They ha- and they're not caught up in gossip and tearing others down. Their conversation, when you listen, is strong and edifying and clean and godly. Right, So that's the first thing you can look to. Um, the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know if somebody is a, is, has godly wisdom, listen to their conversations and pay attention to what is the abundance of their heart. You can find out real quick what somebody is passionate about. All you have to do is hit on it. And see how much, you can be talking scriptures with somebody, and there may not be a lot of excitement, there may not be a lot of discussion, there may not be a lot of conversation, but then you bring up, uh, I don't know, rodeo, or fishing, or sports of some sort, or maybe, I, I mean, it could be anything. Whatever it is that they're passionate about, then they start talking about it, Right? I do this as a teacher in school. I try to find those things that kids are passionate about so I can get to know them. And when I find that thing that they like, that they'll come out of their shell a little bit and talk about it. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, godly wisdom, a godly person, man, woman, you're going to hear these things come out in their conversations, right? So that's the first thing, good conversation. The second thing is good works. So it's not just by talking, Because we all know somebody that can talk a good game. We all know somebody that has all kinds of good things to say, good plans that they're the next big thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I can talk the talk, but I can't walk the walk. So uh, when, when you see godly wisdom, when you see true wisdom from above, it's walked out. And what does that look like in a, in a Christian's life? What are good works going to look like? In a Christian's life. Well, what did James say? Or not James, Paul. True religion. It was James. Yeah, sorry. It was James. True religion, undefiled, is what? To care for the widows and the orphans. And, and it goes farther than just the widows and the orphans. But why is it the widows and the orphans? Because you can get nothing in return from them. Right? If you're taking care of the orphans, there's no, there's no ulterior motive to, oh yeah, they're gonna, that, this is gonna, no. It's like the widows, it's like the nursing home ministry. We got several guys in here that are doing this. There's not a lot of glory in going to the nursing home and pre- preaching the gospel. You know, you're not getting on the radio and you're not getting on TV because you do that. You're not getting a lot of pats on the backs because sometimes they're not even able to really um, show their appreciation, but I promise there is appreciation. But there's no return in that. So a Christian work that I would talk about here is that that is selfless. And we're going to talk more about the selflessness as we go on. But there's things that they're doing for the glory of Christ. That's what a, that's what a Christian does, right? So you have good conversation. You have good works that line up with this conversation, doing things for Christ's glory, doing things for fellow Christians, doing things for unbelievers. And the third thing that has to go along with this, or it's not godly wisdom at all, is what he says in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness. The spirit in which you speak and work matters, right? So, in other words, good conversation, it can be faked if you really wanted to. Even good works can be faked. 
So good conversation and good works really do nothing if they're done in pride or arrogance. But if they're done in meekness, then we start to see godly wisdom come together. The word for meekness is praus, which means to exercise God's strength under control. This comes with great humility. With knowledge... Um, a lot of times comes the ability, you, you, when you learn enough about God's Word, you have the ability to rebuke somebody, right? And we see this a lot, I think. I, I'm afraid that we see this a lot. Um, you can rebuke, you can tear somebody down for their actions, um, but that doesn't always mean that it's wise. Um, true wisdom, godly wisdom, has patience and humility with this knowledge, and will gently lead people into truth. Ronnie was talking the other day, and I don't remember exactly where he was, but he he had met somebody, and he was talking to him, and he felt like this is a brother in Christ. And the guy said something that was just in error. It It was a side deal that was probably bad doctrine. And he just refrained from saying anything about that. Why? Because there's going to be time later to teach and correct and gently lead somebody. And, and we all, I think we've made mistakes. I know I've made mistakes about jumping on something that's wrong. But as I look back in my Christian walk, as I look back into how Jesus saved me, some of the things that he used in my life to bring me closer to him, I would not recommend now. There were books that I read. There were some preachers that I listened to. There were some conferences that I went to that if you asked me and said, is this something I should go to, I would probably say, you know, it's, it's really not. There's some unbiblical things being taught there. But yet, I was in it, and God used it in a way to get glory for himself and to bring me to a position um, closer to himself. And so when people are bringing these things up and they're excited, my sister was talking the other day, and if you haven't heard, my sister recently, well, I don't know exactly when she came to Christ, but she's really coming into um, some deeper truths, and she's extremely excited about Christ and Christianity, and she mentioned Beth Moore, and Beth Moore was used mightily in my wife's walk with Christ. God used her. and But there's some things that she's getting into that I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend, hey, go read this. I think there's better avenues to get to biblical truth. But it was one of those things like, okay, I could jump on this, but I'm not going to. It's not necessary to correct and rebuke and take the knowledge that I have and beat somebody over the head with it, right? I will do it, and I will gently do it. I'll, I'll do it through and with some time and with some meekness. And that's what James is talking about here. And I have to, I mean, obviously it's convicting because I wanted to. I wanted to jump on it. So those are the three things um, that we see. Let's look on to verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So we see in verse 13, what does godly wisdom look like? We see in verse 14, the opposite of godly wisdom. What is it? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And this is where we can see the problem with application versus knowledge. I've seen people use knowledge for a variety of selfish reasons. You've seen people use knowledge for a variety. And I'm talking about biblical knowledge here. I'm talking about knowledge of the scriptures. Some people will use the knowledge of the scriptures to manipulate people to do what they want to. Sometimes this is done in, a, in a, such a broad sense that it develops into a cult. Right? That's what the cults do. They will take the knowledge they have of the Scripture. Now, sometimes it's, it, it's always misapplied. And sometimes it's 
pieced and out of context and whatever, but they will use this knowledge to guilt people, manipulate people into doing what they want them to do, right? And they get a control over people. And it's not just within an organization like that. It happens individually. People will use the scriptures to manipulate people into doing what they want to. Um, The other thing people will use knowledge for is to make themselves look smarter or elevate themselves into some sort of position of esteem. And they like to talk a lot about their knowledge and they like to demonstrate. Usually it's very intelligent people that can remember things really well, but it's not always that. But it's just a, and and it's a pride, it's an arrogance that comes with this knowledge. And it's a selfish ambition that he says, do not boast of this. And he says that's false to the truth. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, I think if I would just remember that those two verses constantly, I would have a lot closer walk with Christ. If we would remember those two verses constantly, we would have a lot less problems in the church, in our families, in our workplace, in everything that we do, that if we would esteem others more significant than ourselves. I would say, I was talking to a young man the other day, he was talking about marriage and different things that caught finances and this and that that caused divorce. And I thought, you know what the number one reason for a failed marriage is? Selfishness. I guarantee it, it's selfishness. Usually on both parts. Usually on both parties. The number one reason for church splits? Selfish pride and ambition over some of the most silly things. Some Things that are serious, but regardless of what it is, it's a selfish pride that causes most of these problems. If we would stop and esteem others as higher than ourselves, it would solve many, many issues. And, and And this goes down to even personal relationships, the things that we find ourselves doing, the the that we could help you we could use our finances to help others instead of whatever it is that's distracting us from the word of god we could use our time in better ways to help others instead of this selfish thing that we do with our time selfishness is an extreme problem and james says this is not wisdom this selfish ambition James says that's not wisdom at all. Paul says, esteem others higher than yourself. Boasting and bragging, self-glorification does nothing for Christ. Except tear, tear down his name, tear down his church, tear down his people. So look on at verse 15. James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. So it's not God's wisdom. These things, and, and the world, if you were here this morning, Paul talked several about things that the world likes to call ambitious. They like to call wisdom. And James is saying, this is not wisdom. Self-ambition, self-glorification, a jealous attitude is not from God. Now, is that what the world teaches? Self-ambition? No, the world teaches that you need to do what you can to climb the corporate ladder, to gain position here, gain position there. Um, Self-glorification. Who are the most famous people in our culture? Do they self-glorify? Anybody keep up with uh, like professional sports at all? 
Do those guys self-glorify? Yeah. Extremely. And the world applauds them for it. And the world pays them millions of dollars to do it. Right? But, the, but James is saying that's not wisdom at all. On the contrary, he's saying it's earthly, it's natural. He even says it's demonic. Demonic. So what is he talking about here? He's, I don't think he's talking about the people that do this are possessed by demons. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. But what he is talking about is a person that is living this way, a person that is trying to attain these things, that they have this type of wisdom, this earthly wisdom, has bought into a lie or lies that were the, the origins are demonic. You can think back to the garden. The origins of this type of thinking goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Eve tells Satan, or the serpent, she tells him the rules that were given to her. We're not supposed to eat that or even touch it or else we die. And what was his response? You will not die. That, that's the demonic lie. You can do these things that you want to do. You don't have to listen to God's rules and you'll be fine. Matter of fact, it'll even be better. You'll be like God's. And so we see these things when we look around and we see all this stuff going on. That is what people are trying to attain to in one way or another. You listen to, um, I mean, you, you look at, like politicians, especially presidents and things like that, and they're all concerned about their legacy and their place in history and what is everybody going to think about them. And you see these guys that have millions of dollars and they're donating money so they can get their name on a building or they can leave their legacy so that all that is is trying to attain a godhood almost. I want people to remember me for the rest of history. And what difference does it make? When you're gone, is that going to matter? No, you're going to be faced with you and God alone. But we see this. We see this lie being acted out before our eyes. Um, it's, the type of, it's the type of lie. It's the demonic origin that finds compromise and sympathy with sin. I saw a Facebook post the other day, and the lady, it's like when you're talking about abortion, it's like it's, it's always wrong until it comes down to rape or incest, and then it's okay. Well, that's sympathy with a sin that is murder, right? That is a lie from the pit of hell, Okay? And, every, and like on that particular issue, everybody wants to go the ungodly route and say, well, we, we should have sympathy on this poor girl. We should. Listen to me. We should have great sympathy on those cases. And we should help them in any way we can. But the judgment is not on the baby. The judgment should be on the one who committed the crime. Right? So we see these things happen, we see sympathy creep in, and instead of it going in a godly wisdom, which would be to correctly judge and punish the one that committed the crime, we see an ungodly wisdom of, we'll cover it up with this extra sin. It's also the type um, that will bash particular sins because we don't struggle with them. Hmm. Does this one get anybody else other than me? It's real easy to get on those sins like abortion. I can bash abortion all day long because I have no temptation to support it. I have no temptation to participate in it in any way. So I can bash it. Or homosexuality. I, that's not tempted. But what about the sins that I am tempted with? Godly wisdom covers all godly wisdom condemns all the sins the unrespectable sins the respectable sins what we call respectable the ones that we all kind of participate in but just don't talk about right 
That's godly wisdom that comes up with those things. Uh, another, another demonic lie may not be so much in the negative, but more in the positive, in that I can earn this place with God. That kind of wisdom that says, I'm a Christian because of how I look or how I dress or I've done this or I've done that. I've walked this aisle. I've prayed this prayer. I've been baptized. I've whatever, fill in the blank. And no, that's not godly wisdom at all. That is earthly wisdom and its origins are demonic. That's what he's talking about. So we must seek godly wisdom. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Look at 1 John 3.12. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This is the first record of jealousy that we have in Scripture. Cain and Abel. And Abel brought a more excellent sacrifice. He brought it before the Lord and Cain was jealous with the result. Cain was jealous of the positive Affirmation that Abel got, and he was jealous, and he was selfish over the negative that he got. And so what did he do? He murdered his brother. So the jealousy, first jealousy, brings about the first murder. That's what it's going to lead to. So where does it, it says it leads to every vile practice. Look at Galatians chapter 5. And you can see these vile practices. Where is, where is jealousy and, and selfish ambition going to lead? Paul's going to tell us here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it seems over simple. It seems too, too simplified. It, it seems almost not real to believe that all of those things are going to be a result of selfish ambition. But just look and see. I mean, just just pick a few of those out there. Um, sensuality. Do we have a problem with sensuality in our culture today? Absolutely we do. Everywhere you look, there's sensuality. They use it to sell products. They use it to pull you in. It's on every magazine rack in the checkout line. It's on every... Internet, site, it's whatever it is, sensuality is running rampant in our culture. Pornography is running rampant in our culture. Lust is running rampant. And used to it was more of a problem with the guys. It's not that way anymore. The girls have just as much trouble with it. And what is that? It's a desire to fulfill yourself. That's what it is. It's extremely selfish. That's all it is. When you look down to it, that's the root cause of lust. Um, idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is looking to some sort of false god to what? Fulfill my needs. Paul was talking about it being a, a, a worldwide phenomenon about this uh, kind of a Santa Claus in the sky idea of God. I saw a video. You guys, a lot of you know Brady Brewer. He just got back from Scotland preaching on the streets over there. And there was a video of a young lady who got extremely upset with them for sharing the gospel. And she was a Christian, is what she said. And she rips up their gospel track and throws it on the ground. And they were being very gentle 
Why, why would you do that? And she's like, well, Jesus is, Christianity is just about helping people. Where'd she get this idea? That's idolatry. She does not know the true God. Idolatry is about fulfilling your selfish needs. I mean, you can, you can go through any of these. Um, anger. This, is, this one's getting on my toes. I have an issue with that sometimes. Praise God, it's not as much as it used to be, but I still have it. And what is it? Why do I get angry over things? It's because you didn't respect me enough. It's because you didn't pay attention to my needs enough. You didn't do whatever it is that I wanted. Selfishness, right? Any of those you look at, when you look at them in light of this scripture, when you look at them in light of what James is saying, it's selfish ambition. And we would be well off to think like that and to take our minds off of ourselves and put our minds on Christ. And then look at verse 17. Change gears just a little bit here. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So the first thing to note here, where does the wisdom, where does this true wisdom come from? It says the wisdom from above. It can and will only come from God. It's a gift. We cannot attain it by ourselves. We can attain knowledge. We can read and we can get knowledge. But we cannot learn how to apply it apart from the Holy Spirit who gives us this wisdom, who gives us this application. Um, And then he gives several descriptions here of what heavenly wisdom or godly wisdom uh, looks like. The first one is that it is pure. It is not tainted with a known sin, iniquity, or defilements. It's not tainted with known sin. So in other words, now, would the person who has godly wisdom, and you guys can all think of someone who you know that um, has demonstrated this godly wisdom from above, does that mean they don't have sin? No. No, of course not. We don't believe in sinless perfection. But what it does mean is that their ambitions and their applications are a constant process of sanctification. Sanctification is that process of you being set apart. It's you be, it means to be made holy or to be set apart. And it's an ongoing process. It begins at your salvation and it will be ongoing until you've been glorified and stand before Christ. So on this earth, that should be a process that you are gaining on as you grow in Christ, right? So if you've been a saved person, if you've been a Christian for ten years, and you have the same level of sanctification, if you're no different from the world in ten years than you were when you were first saved, you probably need to go back and check that salvation. You probably need to go back and check what your position really was. Were you truly born again? But it's a process that we see happen. And so it's when this wisdom comes... The sanctified, the wise man or woman are able to apply this wisdom apart from sin and not be tainted. Their actions won't be tainted with, usually it's a selfish ambition. Usually it's a self-glorifying thing. It's humility, basically. The second thing is, it is peaceable. Those who are truly wise do what they can to preserve peace when it is present. And they also do what they can to restore or to make peace where it is not or where it has been lost. And you think about that. You think about the actions that you take. And I want you to think about these things even as you go forward. When you make decisions... You make it, it kind of goes right back to the first part of the chapter when you talk. 
Are your words going to build up? Are your words going to edify? Or are they going to tear down? Are your actions, is what you're going to do, is this going to create peace? Or is it going to create division? Is it going to create strife? And think about the places where this is. I mean, it can be in full kingdoms. And, and you know, you can look in our country right now. There's a lot of things being said and done. They're stirring up strife by many people. That seems to be a political game. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. The news media and the politicians like strife because it gets viewers. It gets entertainment value. It doesn't get truth. Truth doesn't stir up strife, usually. So in kingdoms, in large organizations. But what about in families? As a father, do your actions stir up strife or do they bring peace in the home? As a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a child. This goes to all of us. We should all be seeking godly wisdom. It's not just something for old people. This is something we should be striving for from the day that we become a Christian Until the day that we die, or until the day that Christ calls us home, we should be striving for godly wisdom. And so, are your actions stirring up strife in the home, in the the church, in society, in your workplace? You know, uh, Ronnie was talking last night about, I I laugh, this isn't funny, but it's kind of comical, about the post office. And how they wanted him to file a grievance on somebody else when he was carrying mail. And he was like, no, I don't, it's, it's really not a, it's, oh, we'll file it. We'll fill it all out for you. And all you gotta do is turn it in and file this grievance. And I, I, and the guy that he was talking to said, why do they do that? And he's like, it's just what they do. And there's people like that all over the place that we run into, that we have meetings with, that we work with, that we, deal with that are always wanting strife they're always wanting division they're always stirring that up there's people who name the name of christ there's people who hold prominent positions within god's church and within his organizations and different things that are constantly doing this and i'm telling you seek godly wisdom and seek to make peace first And seek to bring peace back first. That's what godly wisdom does. Now, does that mean it's always going to happen? No. No, it doesn't. We do not give up truth. We don't sacrifice truth in order for peace. Okay? But that doesn't mean... It's kind of like the question Shelby asked this morning about persecution. The question was, does persecution come... How do you separate like persecution if it's coming because of us or if it's becoming, coming because of the gospel? That's a major paraphrase. I may have just butchered that. But basically that was the question, right? And we don't want to be that. We don't want to, we don't want to sacrifice peace in order, I mean, we don't want to sacrifice truth in order to get peace, but we don't have to be like the blunt, obnoxious, arrogant way to bring in the truth. Does that make sense? The, the next thing is that it is gentle, which kind of goes right along with this. Not being rude and overbearing in conversation, nor harsh and cruel in temper. And this doesn't mean that we cower down um, or that we stand on truth, but it does mean that we stand on truth in meekness and Humility. And the next one he says is open to reason. Heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom, is very persuadable either to what is good or from what is evil. So somebody who is wise, somebody who has this true godly wisdom from above, approaches conversations with the idea, and this is part of the meekness, this is part of the humility, that I could be wrong. Do you know why they have that? 
usually it's because they've been wrong before. And when you've been wrong and you've been way wrong for a long time or even for a short time, then you are much more likely to approach a conversation or situation with that meekness, with that humility of, there's a possibility I could be wrong. There's no possibility scripture can be wrong. And I feel like what I got, it's funny as we, when we're wrong about doctrine, we don't know it. If we knew it, we would change it, right? I mean, that's the thing about being deceived, um, or just, or just in error. But, so when we approach these conversations, the idea should be that I feel like I'm getting this from scripture. I feel like I'm standing on God's word on this. And, and we can know it in our heart. And you can be wrong, right? Sincerity on God's word does not mean correct. And so the wise person will enter that conversation with the ability to be persuaded by what? By scripture. Not by your philosophies. Not by the world's philosophies. Not by deceit or vain deceit. No, but by scripture we can be persuaded so we're open to reason. Um, the next one is full of mercy and good fruits. To relieve those who are in need and to forgive those who have offended. Um, mercy. What a concept that we should probably have more of. Was Jesus quite merciful with us? Absolutely. The mercy that he has demonstrated to his people is really unfathomable. We can't even imagine um, what that is. And so, for us, we should demonstrate the same to all those around us, right? To relieve those who are in need. And when I say those who are in need, that could be spiritually, especially spiritually. There's lots of people in need spiritually. And how do we relieve that spiritual need? We, sh- we sh- introduce them to Christ, right? We introduce them to the gospel, the good news of his salvation. But what about those who are in need physically? We should also have mercy on them. Right? And also to forgive those who have offended. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven much. You have been forgiven things that you have not yet even done. Before you even do them, you've been forgiven. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for the ungodly, for sinners. That's all of us. And yet, somehow, we are so arrogant and so hung up on ourselves that we will not forgive others who offend us. And that is one of those lies. That's, that's demonic. That has demonic origins. We won't forgive, although we've been forgiven. No, let us seek godly wisdom and be quick to forgive those who have offended us. And then it says, without partiality. The original word, adikritos, signifies to be without suspicion or free from judging, making no undue surmises nor differences in our conduct towards one person more than another. It's without prejudice. It's not without preconceived, it, it means without preconceived ideas of a person. James talked about this back in chapter 2. We get ideas. We have it's it's an extremely hard thing to overcome to transcend culture. Christ transcends culture. The word of God transcends. We have a hard time with that. But godly wisdom from above will allow you to do that. And it will allow you to see through prejudices whatever they may be. And trust me, you can get on a list of these and you can go on and on and on. The obvious ones are things that we hear about all the time like race and maybe your economic culture, what you look like. But there's other prejudices that we have 
male, female. There's other ones uh, just about background, who your parents are. Does anybody ever, does anybody, and, and I know if there's school teachers in here, you've dealt with this, but I know probably everybody has. Well, I know that guy's dad, and so he's got to be the same as him, right? Or I know, I know her dad, I know her grandpa, and he was, he was a great guy, so she's probably awesome. Right? We have these prejudices that we don't even think about. Some of them obvious, some of them not so obvious. But James says we're going to, this, this godly wisdom is without partiality. Is that without suspicion? It's mere true biblical judgment, biblical knowledge applied towards other people. And then the last one he says is sincere. It's without hypocrisy. It has no guile or deceit. Hypocrisy is a tough one, isn't it? There's a line in the Facing the Giants movie that I think about a lot because I see it so often. I see it in myself. I see it in others. And it's been a long time since that movie's been out. There's probably people that haven't seen it. But uh, it's the coach talking to the football player. And the player's kind of just rising on his dad. He's like, he better be coming to get me. He goes, what's the deal? And he, he says, you don't, you don't know my dad. He's not a good guy. He doesn't even like you. And the coach says this. He says, you cannot judge yourself by your intentions and others by their actions. And the truth is, we all do that. Because we know our intentions are good. And even though we might not act on them, I was intending, my intentions were good. But all we can see in others is their actions. That's hypocrisy, is what that is. And so you can't do that and be, and demonstrate godly wisdom. And it has no guile or deceit. It is straightforward. It is honest truth. Spoken in love, but honest. Not withholding the truth of God's word. It's sincere and open, steady and uniform, and consistent with itself. It's logical. It's a logical truth, this wisdom that we talk about. And then we look at verse 18. And he says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Matthew Henry said this, he said, Let others reap the fruits of contentions and all the advantages they can propose to themselves by them. But let us go on peaceably to sow the seeds of righteousness, and we may depend upon it, and our labor will not be lost. In other words, you can let the world have this fruit of contention. Sowing seeds of strife constantly, and and if you, my wife and I got away for a day, uh, just this last week, and in the hotel room they had um, cable. I don't have cable at home. I don't have a satellite or anything like that. And I was just flipping through the channels, and there's news channels on all the time. Did you guys know that CNN and Fox and all that stuff? They run all the time mainly repeating themselves from what I could tell. And I didn't stay there long, but I was, it was interesting. I mean, it was just, it was like the big planter, not like a two-row planter. This was like the 24-foot seed planter of strife. That's, and guys driving it as fast as they could go, side by side, right? You see these videos where farmers come help each other and they all the farmers show up with the big planters and the big tractors and they can plant a field in no time well that's what these guys do and our culture eats it up they love it both sides you got the you got the conservatives and you got the liberals and both sides just love this strife and i'm telling you let's not get caught up in that stuff He says, Matthew Henry said, let others reap the fruits of contentions and all the advantages they can propose to themselves. What are the advantages? Nothing. It all ends in sorrow. But let us go on peaceably to sow the seeds of righteousness. That's what James said. Harvest of righteousness is sown in peace 
this strife that we stir up sometimes in our own conversations because we get passionate about the gospel. The passion about the gospel is a great godly thing. But sometimes we, we do it with the wrong motives. Sometimes we get in debates where we want to win an argument rather than take people and introduce them to Christ. Right? I'm guilty. I'm very guilty. We've all done that. We're all still working on this sanctification. But if you're seeking godly wisdom, we will sow these seeds in righteousness. We will sow the seed of Christ in righteousness. And why? Because then the harvest, the true harvest, it'll look like the the same deal except it'll be combines, right? Combine in the field, side by side, because God is the one who reaps the harvest. And He can do that however He chooses, and it will be peaceful in that. And I thought about this as, as, a, as I close. In this time, in these days and times that we live in, in the church, we hear much talk about certain gifts in the church, Right? And the ones that come up a lot of times are tongues and prophecy, healing, the gift of miracles, these kind of things. And there's all this debate over them and all of that stuff. And I'm going to tell you this. Seek this gift. This gift that is from above, the gift of godly wisdom, which can only be granted, this gift of godly wisdom can only be granted to us Because of why? Because Christ came while we were yet sinners. He died for the ungodly. He he lived the life that we could not live. Right? We were sinners. We were yet sinners when he died for us. Before that, he was born of a virgin. This is not unreal, people. This is real history. He was born of a virgin and lived the life that we could not live. And died a death that we would have spent eternity dying. Think about that. Only because he was God. Only because he was divine could he do that. And then praise God, he came out of that grave. And has now ascended and seated on the right hand of the Father. And he has given us his Holy Spirit. And he has called you. If you are named in Christ today, he has set his affection on you and said, I love you. Insert your name. It is personal. He loves you. And he wants to give you godly wisdom. And he will. He will grant it. Seek after that. It only comes from him. That's the gift that we should be seeking. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, so much uh, for your correction, for your conviction, through your word, through your spirit that I need so often. And God, I praise you that you have not let me stray too far from truth, that you always correct me and bring me back. And God, I pray that you would teach me to do the same, that you would teach me to be gentle, that you would teach me to be humble that you would teach me to love your people as you have loved your church. God, I thank you for just this day and those who are here, and I pray, Lord, uh, your blessings on them. And God, I pray if there's any who have not bowed a knee to you, that you would open their eyes, show them your love, call them into your fold. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.